Radio. You are listening to Texas History Lessons, a slow walk through Texas history made in Texas by a Texan for everyone everywhere. Welcome to Texas History Lessons. I'm Michael. In this episode, we're going to take a look at something that I've been curious about for quite some time. Over the years, I've read a lot and heard a lot about the Seminoles and black Seminoles having gone through Texas before the Civil War to live in northern Mexico, but never really heard much more about that. So... Today we're going to look at that because these, what they call migrant tribes, tribes that have been pushed from the east westward, like the Cherokee and Choctaw, the whole Trail of Tears story, the Seminoles are part of that. And a lot of them did end up in Texas and had an impact on the settlers there, and it impacted the lives of the indigenous populations that were already living there. So that's what we're going to take a look at today. And we're going to do that by focusing on the life of one particular woman who's pretty interesting in her own right. So if you enjoy learning stories and hearing stories about Texas and the Wild West because of the grit and the determination and the danger, then I've got a really good one for you today. For grit, determination, and danger, Johanna July had a life filled with it, as did her people the Black Seminoles. So that's what we're going to be focusing on today. Who were the Black Seminoles? How did they end up in Mexico in South Texas? And who was this tough but cheerful woman named Johanna July? Now, the music you heard at the beginning of the episode is by the great singer-songwriter filled with Texas heart and Louisiana soul, Derek McClendon. And the song is Walking Through History which is a fitting title because in typical Texas history lessons fashion, we're going to take a little slow walk through history and learn how decades of struggle resulted in Johanna July and why she should be remembered today. Back in the 1930s, a lady by the name of Florence Anger Miller traveled to Kenny County, Texas, down on the South Texas border along the Rio Grande. Now, Mrs. Anger Miller was an interesting person worthy of an episode of her own someday. But rather than rush off with a side story on her, as I often would do, let's just stick to the topic at hand. Now, she was working for the Federal Writers Project of the Works Progress Administration during the Great Depression, conducting interviews and preserving history. In Kenny County, in the northeast part of a little town named Brackettville, 
she found an active and nimble woman named Johanna July. At 77 years old, Johanna moved about her small place on the hill, tending a garden, keeping house, gliding over the rocks barefooted, and rolling her cigarettes with a steady hand. Now, Johanna July was a black Seminole. How did she end up there in Brackettville, Texas in the 1930s? Before we learn more about her, we're going to take a little detour down into Mexico. There's a little village in the Mexican state of Coahuila where they celebrate the important celebration of Juneteenth. Its name is Nacimiento de los Negros. And it has a population of just under 300, from what I can gather. It's about a 150-mile drive south from Del Rio, Texas, and about 180 miles west-northwest of Laredo. Now, Nacimiento de los Negros is also about 160 miles from the little town called Brackettville, Texas. You can get there traveling through Piedras Negras and crossing the Rio Grande between Del Rio and Laredo. It's about 30 miles east of Del Rio on the way to Uvalde on US-90. Brackettville is a small town of less than 2,000, and it serves as the county seat of Kenny County, Texas. Interesting fact I found out is that north of Brackettville is the 1950 set of John Wayne's movie, The Alamo. But from what I understand also, it's unfortunately closed to the public. Now, there's a historical marker in Brackettville that reads, Fathers, sons, and brothers served side by side, each new generation becoming scouts. Soldiering and scouting came naturally to these men whose quiet, pride, dependable performance, and habitual courage made them perhaps the most distinguished auxiliary unit in the United States Army history. This plaque is talking about the Black Seminoles, and we're going to learn, uh, with, along with how I, why Johanna ended up there, how they ended up there. Now, a long trip of 721 miles or so from Nacimiento de los Negros, and about 590 miles from Brackettville, farther up, up, up into Oklahoma, you can find a town called Wewoka. The route you would follow travels through San Antonio, Austin, Fort Worth, Denton, Gainesville, and then across the Red River. It's a route similar to the one taken over 150 years ago by the Seminoles and Black Seminoles. We're going to get to that. Wawoka itself has a population of about 3,000 and is the county seat for Seminole County. And it is also the location of the headquarters of the Seminole Nation of Oklahoma, and while there, you can visit the Seminole National Museum. The Seminole Nation has a population of about 17,000, and within it, there are two freedmen bands, the Caesar Bruner Band and the Dozer Barkas Band. Each band has its own formal tribal leadership and three general council representatives in the Seminole Nation. Remember the name Bruner, because it ties into Johanna July's story. Now, what do these three places have to do with one another? 
Do they have any relation to Johanna July and the history of Texas? Heck yes, they do. And they have a lot to do in telling not only the history of Texas, but also the history of the United States. But to tell it, we're going to have to travel 1,300 miles or so east of Nacimiento de los Negros to Florida. Trust me, we will get to Johanna July pretty quick. But her story is tied into this much bigger story. Now, this is going to be an abbreviated version. But we will get to cover it in even greater detail in the future because I've done research on this. I've discovered so many interesting things that I just can't fit it into this. So I'm not going to be doing complete justice to the Seminoles, the Black Seminoles. I'm going to do my best with Johanna July. I'm not going to do a perfect job necessarily with the Black Seminole Scouts. But this is going to be a nice introduction into that. So saddle up and let's head east to Florida, home of the oldest continuously inhabited European settlement in what is now the contiguous United States. The earliest recorded history of Texas is tied to that of Florida. And as we'll soon see in the next Texas history lessons on New Spain, after Cortez established control over the riches of the Valley of Mexico, other people were hungry to discover their own riches and fortunes. That's what brings us at a quick pace to the stretch of North America on the Gulf Coast from Florida to northern Mexico. This was claimed by Spain, and even though they didn't know what lay beyond it, they eventually held claim to a vast territory from Florida and along the Gulf Coast to Texas and then up into the vast Trans-Mississippi West to California and the Pacific. It's a fascinating story that I'm excited to tell very soon. It was in the Narvaez expedition of 1527-1528 that led to Cabeza de Vaca and his other survivors to being the first known people of European and African birth to set foot in Texas. The expedition began in Florida and quickly devolved into a disaster. Later, in the early 1600s, New Spain gave land to some lower creeks in Florida with hopes that they would create a buffer zone between New Spain's holdings and the English settlers in Georgia and the Carolinas. This is a method that the Spanish would use over and over throughout their territories during their history. The creeks were joined by other bands like the Mikasukis and the Apalachicolas. And eventually these people were known as the Seminoles and had a population of about 5,000. Now this process of these different bands coming together and becoming a new people, the Seminoles, is similar to what happened, if you remember, back to the creation of the Tonkawa Nation, where a variety of groups in Texas got together and over time created a new identity as Tonkawas. The process is known as ethnogenesis. And it is also what ended up happening with the creation of the Black Seminoles. And we're going to get to that right now. Spanish Florida was an asylum for slaves escaping from the English colonies. And free communities of blacks lived in Florida and in other parts of New Spain. Spain did hand over Florida to Great Britain in 1763. But the area still served as a sanctuary for black men and women seeking freedom. And the Seminoles provided them with protection and asylum from slave hunters. Now, 
the Seminoles did enslave some black men and women themselves, but it is thought to have been a preferable way to live than the enslavement by the white English colonists. The Seminoles pretty much gave them autonomy to do as they pleased as long as they paid a yearly tribute. As one source I found made clear, it, they lived in their own towns, they kept their own livestock, they had their own chiefs, and they would fight alongside as equals with the Seminole in battle. It seems to be that they adopted some Seminole customs, but they also kept many of their original African cultures, traditions, and customs, along with the Afro-Baptist traditions that had been developed during their enslavement in the South. The black men and women of Florida historically were called Maroons, and they had their own communities next to the Seminole communities. Like I said, they had their own leaders and government. They were also able to arm themselves for defense and control their own labor. And as I said, they also did give an annual tribute to the Seminoles, usually a part of their crops or something like that. The black Seminoles were also valuable to the Seminoles because they could serve as interpreters and intermediaries when negotiating with the whites. Now, of course, intermarriage occurred, and some black Seminoles became full members of Seminole clans. Two especially respected black Seminole leaders early on in the 1800s, early 1800s, were John Kibbutz, he's going to be talked about later, and a gentleman named Juan Caballo. You'll also see Juan Caballo in many works called John Horse, which is the English version of that name. Both are very important to this story. And I'd like to come back in the later time and do a very detailed story about their lives. But right now, let's get to Johanna July. The black Seminoles served as interpreters, like I said, with the whites during times of trouble. But when interpretation and talk failed, the black Seminoles were not afraid to step up as fierce warriors. Failure meant not only the defeat of the Seminole people, but also the loss of their own freedom because the white slaveholders of the South were eager to force them into servitude and remove the presence of a strong, proud, armed, and fierce black community in Florida. So fight they did alongside the Seminoles against the United States Army and the efforts waged against them to remove them to the West and to enslave the black people living freely in Florida. Many of you will be familiar with one of the main leaders in the wars against the Seminoles and the struggle waged against them and other tribes east of the Mississippi to take their lands and force them West. He was Texas General, President, Governor, and Senator Sam Houston's mentor, Andrew Jackson. And it was fighting with Jackson against the Creeks that Sam Houston received a very serious wound that plagued him throughout his life. Now, the First Seminole War of 1870 to 1818 was Jackson's effort to take Florida away from the Spanish move the Seminoles to reservations so white settlers could have the better lands and destroy the safe havens created by and for the black Seminoles. They were considered a very serious threat, just as much or more so than the Seminoles themselves. Later on, 
The Second Seminole War was waged from 1835 to 1842. It's considered one of the most fierce wars waged by the United States government against American Indians. And the intention in this was an effort to annihilate or remove completely the Seminoles and the Black Seminoles. Southern plantation owners were extremely scared of this haven for their slaves to escape to. And they were very afraid of the presence of free blacks just so close to them. Now, while I would love to dive into the Seminole Wars in detail for the sake of time, we will push forward to their ultimate result which was the move west of up to 4,000 Seminoles and 800 black Seminoles. Some Seminole refused to leave, and their descendants remain in Florida to the present day. And a very important thing to remember, though, is that black Seminole leader Juan Caballo, or John Horse, and Seminole leader Koa Kuche, or Wildcat, had been prominent fighters along with Osceola and other leaders during the Seminole Wars. But by the spring of 1838, many, if not most, of the black Seminoles were heading west to Indian territory or on their way. Now, trouble already started while they were even in transit. The Creek warriors who had been recruited to fight against the Seminoles had been promised that they could take all the plunder that they could from the Seminoles, and that did include the black Seminoles. And white slave traders from the southern states were in constant pursuit trying to capture the black Seminoles and claim that they were property of southern plantation owners. But the black Seminoles, at this point, did consider themselves free because of a deal made during the wars with a gentleman by the name of Jessup, who had promised them freedom if they agreed to move. Now, upon arrival in Indian Territory between 1838 and 1842, the United States forced the Seminoles and Black Seminoles to settle under the leadership of the Creeks. They weren't going to be considered independent. They were going to be living under the domination of the Creeks one of the peoples that they were related to. But this did not sit well for the Black Seminoles. In Indian Territory, the Black Seminoles continued their practice of establishing autonomous communities next to their Seminole, quote, masters. Juan Caballo settled his band at a place on the Little River that he named, remember back to the beginning, Wawoka which means village of refuge. The Creeks held different views concerning the black Seminoles than the Seminoles did. While many Seminoles were fine with the black Seminoles being armed and independent, the Creek had their own slave codes that insisted on a different, more stringent treatment, much more similar to the slavery practiced by the white plantation owners. And they even wanted to confiscate and buy and sell the Black Seminoles. There was no safety for the Black Seminoles in Indian Territory. There was constant fear and pressure from a lot of different places. For these fiercely independent warriors, it was just too much. 
and John Horse, Juan Caballo, and Wildcat refused to continue living under these circumstances. And starting in 1849, they started leading their bands down through Texas and headed to Mexico where slavery was outlawed. And remember the name of the black Seminole leader, John Kibitz, that I mentioned earlier from the Seminole War. He went as well. Now, Mexico welcomed Wildcat Seminoles and Juan Caballo's black Seminoles and gave them a land grant at the juncture of Rio San Rodrigo and Rio San Antonio. The Mexicans called the black Seminoles Muscagos, and the Muscagos, as had long been their practice established, settled their own settlement at El Moral. The Mexican government saw these immigrant bands as an opportunity to serve as a buffer as fighters against the threats of the Comanches and Apaches to the north, much as the Spanish had considered the Seminoles and Black Seminoles as a buffer against the English colonists. In exchange for the land and citizenship, the Black Seminoles fought and scouted for the Mexican government, and, as in Florida, the Muscoga settlement became refuges for escaped slaves from the north and freed blacks. And, to continue the comparison to the situation that had earlier existed in Florida, United States slave owners and slave proponents insisted that the black men, women, and children seeking refuge with the black Seminoles be returned from Mexico to the United States. Slave hunters conducted raids into Mexico. Mexico responded by relocating the black Seminoles and Seminoles to attractive land more in the interior on the Rio San Juan Sabinas. This place was known as Hacienda de Nacimiento, and over time it became known as, what we talked about in the introduction, Nacimiento de los Negros. Many of the Seminoles later returned to Indian Territory in 1861 after Wildcat and others died from a smallpox uh, plague in the late 1850s. But the Black Seminoles, the Muscogos, remained. And it is here that Johanna July enters our story. Now, during their 20 years in Coahuila, Mexico, from 1850 to 1870, the Seminoles and Black Seminoles served as what some people call military colonists for the Mexican government. Juan Caballo and Wildcat were both made officers, and each commanded units made up of their own men, and they were very active in engagements against raiding Indians, bandits, and in fighting against internal rebellions and wars, and by invasions by United States rangers and slave raiders attempting to annex portions of Mexico and create a pro-slavery state. It was there in Coahuila, Mexico, about October 1860, in Nacimiento, that a baby girl, Johanna Phillips, was born to a mother named Jenny Bruner and a man in the black Seminole family of the surname of Phillips. And it's believed that he is Ned Phillips. Her parents' families had been among the black Seminoles that had been forced west to Fort Gibson in Indian Territory in the late 1830s 
in the early 1840s, and they had joined Juan Caballo on the journey to Mexico in 1849. They also had a son named Joseph. Now, during the 1860s, the Black Seminoles divided into three groups because of various reasons. Some remained at Nacimiento, others moved to Manada Morris, and others went to live in Paras. One man, Elijah Daniels, did cross into Texas in the 1860s to live and led a small group with him. Florence Anger Miller, who did the interview with Johanna July, wrote in the preface to her interview that after crossing into Mexico, they became so thorough in clearing their territory of the marauders, their fame spread into the United States, which prompted the invitation from the army. Now, here's what happened. In 1870, John Kibitz, who was living there, entered into negotiations with United States Army Captain Frank W. Perry and Major Zenas R. Bliss of the 25th United States Infantry. The Seminoles and Black Seminoles, after the Civil War had ended in emancipation, were interested in returning to the United States into Indian Territory. The idea occurred, though, that they could serve, the Black Seminoles could serve as Indian scouts and fighters in West Texas for the United States Army. And the United States recognized that they needed help to combat what they called the Indian depredations, and the Black Seminole warriors had a well-established record as fighters. Kibitz agreed as long as the United States promised to support his people until they were eventually moved to the Seminole Nation in Indian Territory. On July 4, 1870, the first group of black Seminoles crossed the Rio Grande, voluntarily returning to the United States, ultimately with hopes of settling in Indian Territory. And while they were traveling, the military approved the formation of a new unit of Indian scouts. And by August 1870, the black Seminoles became members of the Seminole Negro Indian Scouts Unit. This one is created. Not all of the black Seminoles left Nacimiento, and they are still there today. On August 16th, 1870, Kibitz was commissioned as a sergeant at Fort Duncan, and 10 of his followers were enlisted as privates. Now, Fort Duncan had been established in 1849 near present-day Eagle Pass, Texas, and by October, Johanna's father, Ned Phillips, had enlisted. The Black Seminole family set up camp on Elm Creek near the fort, Elijah Daniels Band and the Matamoris Band arrived later to Fort Duncan in 1871, increasing the Black Seminole Scouts numbers to 18. Juan Caballo brought some Black Seminoles to Fort Duncan in 1875. Some of his men enlisted, and he worked independently as a negotiator and scout. And the Black Seminoles living in the area, they made improvements by working the land and contributing to construction projects at the fort. Army rations were an important part of their survival, and the black Seminole community often came close to starvation in later years, especially after the Army stopped giving them rations. 
the entire community could not be supported on the salaries of the few men who did serve as scouts. Still, they persevered. Eventually, the Black Seminole Scouts were also stationed at Fort Clark, near modern Brackettville, as well as being at Fort Duncan. They built homes in the Mexican Hakal style, using wattle and daub construction and thatched roofs. The scouts and their families, they farmed uh, along Los Morris Creek near Brackettville. They used dams and irrigation systems to help their farming. And among the scouts that served over time, that statement, the historical marker was very accurate. Sons, brothers, fathers, and sons did fight. And you can look at the names. There were several people with the last name of Bowlegs. Uh, Johanna's mother's family, Bruner, had at least five people serve in the scouts. There's a lot, several with the last name of Daniels, Factors, one in particular named Pompey Factor, who won the Medal of Honor, but we'll talk about him in a little bit. The Gordons, Jeffersons, the Julys, where Johanna eventually got her name of Johanna July, had a lot of people in there. The Kibbets had several family members serving, and it really was a community and family affair. It became a tradition, and they fought for the United States Army. And the Black Seminole Scouts proved to be valuable assets. They could speak English, Spanish, and they could also speak a number of Native American dialects. And let's not forget, they had a heritage of fighting. They were fierce. They had fought the United States. They had fought for Mexico against raiding Native Americans. And they went on to distinguish themselves fighting under Colonel Ronald S. McKenzie and Lieutenant John L. Bullis in the wars against the Comanches and Kiowas on the Southern Plains in the 1870s. Now this guy, Lieutenant John Lapham Bullis, became commander of the scouts at Fort Clark in 1873. And over the next eight years, they participated in 26 lengthy campaigns. Despite their being heavily outnumbered many times, they never lost a man killed in action or had anybody suffer extremely serious wounds in action. And they never numbered more than 50 men at a time. With their service, they participated in stopping the Indian raids in Texas and helped protect local ranchers from loss of life and livestock. One contemporary trooper called them, quote, the best body of scouts, trailers, and Indian fighters ever engaged in the government service along the border. And four of them distinguished themselves so much that they earned the highest award for valor by an individual serving in the Armed Forces of the United States, the Medal of Honor. John Ward, Isaac Payne, Pompey Factor, and Adam Payne served with such distinction that they received this honor. Three of these men, Pompey Factor, Isaac Payne and John Ward were recognized for a fight at Eagle's Nest Crossing on the Pecos River with Bullis in 1875, where 
they charged a superior group of 25 people while out on a scouting patrol. And for their valor, they were recommended and received the Medal of Honor. Adam Payne was recognized for his service in 1874 while fighting with Mackenzie up in the Panhandle against the, during the last push against the Comanches. And he singled himself out for the recognition for the Medal of Honor. But a little-known fact, and this is an interesting story, I'd like to come back and talk about all their activities later on. But little-known fact, the only person I've ever heard of a Medal of Honor winner being killed by a Medal of Honor winner it was Adam Payne. And he ended up being killed by a gentleman named Claren A. Windus, who was Deputy Sheriff of Brackettville, Texas. And he shot Payne instead of attempting to arrest him as a murder suspect. And Wendis had received his Medal of Honor for service in 1870. He had joined as a bugler as a young man during the Civil War and then continued on his service afterwards out with the cavalry. And he distinguished himself at a fight up on the Wichita River in North Texas and as far as I know, Payne is the only Medal of Honor winner killed by a Medal of Honor winner. It's a very strange coincidence how that kind of came together down on the border at Brackettville. But I digress. Now, Johanna's father did not receive the Medal of Honor. But that didn't, doesn't mean he didn't provide valuable and essential service. And he did. He broke horses for the Army. And he also supported his family with farming and raising livestock. And Mr. Phillips served with the Scouts through a number of brief enlistment periods from 1870 until his final discharge date of 1872, and it's believed that he died pretty soon after this final discharge. Now, Johanna had grown up always being fond of horses and showed more interest in them than with helping her mother with the household chores and other things around the farm. A black Seminole scout named Adam Wilson had taught her to ride. And she showed such skill that her family let her keep helping take care and tending to the animals. And after Ned died, she continued to work as an expert horsebreaker. And she took a lot of pride in her horsemanship. And she lived an interesting childhood. Her father dead, and from what I've read here, her brother having run away, Johanna, at such a young age, was allowed to follow in her father's horse-breaking work, and she did excel. Now, she preferred to ride bareback and sideways, and she scorned saddles. She told Anger Miller in the 1930s that I couldn't straddle him. I didn't use no bridle either, just a rope around their necks and looped over the nose. We call it a nosin', same as a half hitch. Old man Adam Wilson learned me how to ride. He was an old scout. Right today, I don't like a saddle and I don't like shoes. I can sure get over the ground barefooted. Her mother would have her meals ready and cl her clothes washed for her, and she focused on the horses. She broke them, watered them, cut hay for them. And as long as the other stock had been cared for by her, her only responsibility, as Anger Miller would write in the interview, was to ride, ride, ride. 
Angular Miller also adds a beautiful description of her as a young woman. Dressed in bright homespun dress, ropes of beads around her slender neck, long gold earrings nearly touching her shoulders, her hair in thick black braids and her feet bare, she flashed among her horses like a bright bird, soothing them with a masterful hand and soft words. A shuck cigarette of black horse tobacco between her lips, Johanna rode as well as a boy, her eye always quick and her senses alert. The horses were there to break, and Johanna, being dexterous and nimble, was quite able to accomplish the task, though she devised her own means of doing so. As Johanna explained it, I could break a horse myself, me and my lord. Many a narrow scrape I've been through with horses and mules. I'll tell you how I broke my horses. I would pull my clothes off and get into the clothes I intended to bathe in, and I would lead them right into the Rio Grande and keep them in there till they got pretty well worried. When they was wild, wild, I would lead them down the river and get them out in the water where they couldn't stand up, and I would swim up and get them by the mane and ease up on them. He couldn't pitch, and when I didn't let him out of that deep water, he didn't want to pitch. Sometimes they wasn't so wore out and would take a running spree with me when they got out in the shallow water where they could get their feet on the ground, and they would run clear up into the corral. But I was young, and I was having a good time. She also relates about her own close calls with raiding Native Americans. I was used to hard riding. I've been chased by the Indians. One day it was cloudy and I went out to cut hay for the horses. And as the Lord should have it, I got so sleepy I said, suppose I lay down here and take myself a nap and then finish cutting my hay. But I thought, no, I better go on and cut my hay. And about then I saw the horses getting nervous and they had their ears up looking at something and acting scared. I had a big bay, and I could call him up to me, so I hollered to him, Come, Bill, come, Bill, and all the horses came running. I jumped on a little gray horse named Charlie, and when I cut my eye around, here come an Indian in full gallop leaning over his horse, and I started running and run clear by the army post and all them horses. The post sent the scout out, and they took up the trail. There was two Indians and they followed them clear into Mexico and brought them back, but they didn't break me. I was always out with them horses. That last statement says a lot about Johanna and perhaps even the Black Seminoles. They were tough and they were survivors. And though she might break horses, hardship would not break her. The military ordered all of the Black Seminoles at Fort Duncan to move to Fort Clark in 1876. And Johanna would have gone along, and she then took on a new challenge, marriage. Now, at this time, some of the black Seminoles hoped that the government might honor its original guarantee to move them to Indian territory. But this was not to happen, because already government bureaucrats were raising issues of ethnicity and responsibility. Were they Seminoles? Were they black? What responsibility did the United States government have to the black Seminoles despite initial verbal agreements? The United States Army, the Indian Bureau, and the Department of the Interior fought over who had to assume financial responsibilities for the black Seminoles for decades. The black Seminoles themselves were divided over what to do with their future. 
Some, like Johanna, remained at Fort Clark near Brackettville. Others returned to Nascimento, and others returned with the black freedmen up in the Indian Territory in the Seminole Nation. Johanna did stay. She married an army scout named Carolina, or Carlino, in July of 1877. And apparently, he wasn't necessarily the nicest of husbands for poor Johanna. He lived at Morris Creek near the fort in Kenny County. And Fort Clark, like I said, was near Brackettville and about 45 miles from Fort Duncan near Eagle Pass. Young Johanna July's marriage did not last long. They had what might be best described as a highly volatile relationship. And from what it sounds like, the dude was just a bad guy. As Anger Miller wrote, Johanna's life had been as free and untamed as a bird's up to that point. She could judge a horse's age, endurance, and speed. She knew where the eagles nested and the coyote kept their whelps. And she could point out the dark pools where the yellow cat fed in the Rio Grande. But that wasn't the knowledge she needed when she married the scout who brought her to live at Fort Clark, away from the Rio Grande and her horses. However, she tried hard to be a dutiful wife. There were days when she attempted to sew and the thread would not up. The material would be cut wrong and the whole garment wouldn't fit. She'd scorch her beans and rice. She'd get the stew too dry or forget to put the corn in to soak. The husband would come in with harsh words and, as Anger Miller wrote, a hard fist. Instead of the kindness she had known, she was introduced to a life that seemed more like a prisoner's. Anger Miller wrote, At length, her tears dried and her cunning brain began to deliberate and escape. She was not capricious for life in the open, had prepared her to face facts with an open mind, and her grief was genuine. After a final violent encounter, Johanna decided that she was done with Carolina July. She snuck from the house and into a field where a neighbor kept their workhorse. She had no rope, but she had ingenuity. With a small, worn pocket knife, she cut strips of Spanish dagger into strings and made herself a rope. She mounted up on the horse and set out to Fort Duncan and Eagle Pass, where her mother lived. As she explained to Anger Miller, I couldn't get that old pony out of a trot. And I rode that 45 miles that night. As I got to Fort Duncan, I heard a sentry call out, four o'clock and all is well. I know, I said to myself, all may be well, but I don't feel so well after this ride. I met two batches of men, and I guess they could tell I was a woman because they heard me talk. They told me, who comes there? And I said, friend. Then they said, where are you headed for? And I told them Fort Duncan, and they let me pass and didn't offer to hurt me. I guess they was rangers. The next bunch I met was about a mile from the fort. They didn't speak, and I didn't either. So there she finds her way, and she's living at Fort Duncan with her mother. But Carolina July did not freely allow Johanna to be a runaway bride and tried repeatedly to force her to return to his home on several occasions. Johanna said, I never did go back to him. He'd come down there three or four times to get me, but I wouldn't go. He shot at me two different times, but missed me. Then he tried to rope me, but the Lord fixed it so my head was too low and the rope went over. 
I got to the brush and he never could find me. He would have killed me and I knowed it. But the reign of terror would end because July died in 1884 and his service with the scouts would benefit her later on. Now, as the Indian Wars came to an end, the Indian scouts were no longer necessary and the designation itself began to be shut down. Many discharged members of the scouts joined the regular army and became Buffalo soldiers. But in the early 1900s, the Seminole Negro Indian Scout Detachment was entirely disbanded. And all but a few aged and infirm black Seminoles were forced to abandon their homes on the military reservation of Fort Clark. Now, in 1880, Johanna was still living with her mother, Jenny Phillips, near Eagle Pass. And then sometime after 1880, Johanna married a gentleman named Alexander Wilkes, who was a soldier at Fort Duncan, and they had four children, John Fitzgerald Wilkes, Ned Wilkes, Lucinda Wilkes, and Amanda Wilkes. But, unfortunately, Alexander had died by 1900 because on the 1900 census, she was listed as a widow with John, Ned, Lucinda, and Amanda living with her in Eagle Pass. About the age of 49, Johanna married one more time. And she, on February 16, 1909, she married Charles Lasley. And together they successfully raised cattle, broke horses, and sold hides. She recalled this marriage for Anger Miller, saying, I helped my last husband break horses and mules. I remember one bad mule. He was the meanest one I ever had any dealings with. He was hip-shotting. I had to tie his good front leg to his good back leg. And don't you know, he'd catch me by the clothes and toss me and shake me if he could get a hold of me. I never did break him. I got afraid of him. I've had some awful scrapes. I hunted and trapped with my last husband and sold many a hide. I could get out and cut a cord and a half of wood easy. Down here on the Fadilas ranch, I've had mules run away with me and sometimes tear the wagons to pieces. I don't know about you, but if Joanna July doesn't fit the epitome of gritty, determined, and tough, I don't know who is. She she was a character. Now, moving forward, in 1912, between 1912 and 1914, the United States Army did disband the, the Black Scouts, and the two to 300 Black Seminoles at Fort Clark moved to nearby Brackettville. This was during the time when Johanna was married to Lasley, but he died in 1925. And as Johanna told Anger Miller, my last husband has been dead eight years now. My first husband was so mean to me. I suppose that was why the Lord fixed it. So I didn't divorce him and he didn't divorce me. And now what little bread I'm getting, I'm getting it off of him. Meaning she was able to file in 1928 for a United States military pension as the widow of Carolina July. And this is probably why she gave her name as Johanna July to Florence Anger Miller and why she is remembered as the literally catchy Johanna July instead of Johanna Lasley. Johanna could still be found in 1940 at the age of 80 living on Rufford Street in Brackettville. 
Her granddaughter, Oramae Roach Brown, and her family lived next door. And when Anger Miller interviewed her a few years before, she still resented being moved with the other black Seminoles from Fort Clark. She was not alone. Two of the original scouts were still alive, as were three of the oldest women that had been married to or were sisters of the first scouts. Anger Miller, of course, considered the government's obligation paid in full. Johanna and others did not agree. Still, even that would not break her. At age 77, Johanna still moved about her place, tending her garden, keeping a house, gliding over the rocks barefooted and rolling her cigarettes with a steady hand. Johanna July, or Johanna Phillips Lasley, as her death certificate stated, passed away on January 18, 1942, and according to interviews with family members, she was buried at the Seminole Scout Cemetery in Brackettville. There are photographs of her online taken by a WPA photographer in 1937 when she was in her late 70s. And the photographer listed her as Johanna Les- Leslie, ex-slave, Brackettville. Definitely a wrong statement. Johanna Chona Phillips, July Wilkes Leslie, black Seminole, born in Nacimiento de los Negros, Mexico, had never been enslaved and had always been free-spirited and independent. She was a horsebreaker and a fighter, and like her people, she was tough as nails. As the Handbook of Texas says, today, communities of black Seminoles still exist in Brackettville, Oklahoma, and in Nacimiento. They hold reunions and cultural celebrations regularly from all three communities. And despite their modern differences, black Seminoles in Texas, Oklahoma, and Mexico still maintain great pride in their common heritage. And Johanna Joala and the Black Seminole Scouts are definitely part of this proud heritage. They were resourceful and resilient. They developed strong, mobile communities, and their community continues on today. So that's going to be it. We're going to take a short break. Thank Age of Radio for hosting Texas History Lessons, and then we'll come back and wrap up with some more information and close out the show. All right. I hope y'all enjoyed learning about the Black Seminoles, the Black Seminole Scouts, and Johanna July. In this episode, I did. I'm going to keep digging into their history and learning more, and in the future, we'll come back and share some more information They are just one of many of these tribes that came from east of the Mississippi to the west. One of the ones I've had a long interest in is the Delaware. They were also very active and played a big role as scouts and guides. Um, Had some pretty amazing adventures and were everywhere and active on the frontier as intermediaries for the white settlers and the Plains tribes and just every bit as fearless as the black Seminoles had been. So I would look forward to someday sharing more about them In closing. I do want to thank uh, Derek McClendon for the theme song. He has a new album coming out on 
March the 5th, Interstate Daydreamer. It's a new album with nine songs. Interstate Daydreamer, Denver, Cocaine and Coffee, He, Me and My Rosalie, Dear Johnny, Stay, My Grandpa, and The River. And you can hear some of these songs if you go over and check out Texas River Tonk. It's a radio show from San Marcos that is also on the internet as a podcast where Blake Farrar plays a lot of great music. And Derek was on recently and played some of the upcoming songs and some other classics of his own content. And uh, definitely recommend that you go check that out. So thanks to Derek for the theme song. Look forward to this new music. And don't forget, also look for new music. Uh, Zach Welch and Robert Herrera have an EP, a live EP out called Live from Aggieland. That's great. Go check it out. And don't forget about a lot of the other Texas Spotlight artists. They're all in the show notes from Jared Flushy to Mondo Salas, Rosemond, Seth Jones, Cade Anson, and the list goes on and on and on. Check out all of their music. And don't forget to check out Melvin E. Edwards' book, The Eyes of Texans. After talking with him, he's one of the reasons I decided to do another episode for Black History Month. Remember to check out the Wild West Extravaganza podcast, the History Cafe podcast, and Off Mic, Off the Record, a great music podcast that you should definitely have in your queue. I want to thank all the Patreon supporters for helping support the show and everybody that's helped with buying me a cup of coffee another way you can contribute one time deal that you don't with no commitment and just everybody that's reached out had a mother who homeschools she uses the show for helping teach her daughter at home i've heard some excellent comments that i'll get back to y'all in the future share some of it with but i just want to thank everybody for listening so we're going to wrap it up take care of yourself take care of each other be kind adios well, I packed up my saddlebags and headed out into that setting sun. It was the west and only west, and I couldn't rest until my job was done. I had to find the man that killed my brother, and I had to bring him in. He was wanted alive or dead, and I had me burning within Oh can't you see what it means to me that justice served for family that evil man killed my best friend and I'm gonna shoot him dead yeah I'm gonna shoot him dead
Looked as if he'd seen a ghost His whole body filled with fear, no doubt Oh, can't you see what it means to me That justice is served for family You evil man, you kill my best friend And I'm gonna shoot you dead Justice will serve for family That evil man Killed my best friend And I had to shoot him dead Yeah, I had to shoot him dead Yeah, I had to shoot him dead 